Our scripture reading this morning is from Joshua 18. Start in verse 1, we'll read through verse 3. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land laid subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Good morning. It is good to be with you today. I was excited when Pastor Stan gave me the opportunity to preach. When I met with them, he said, you can preach anything you want from Joshua 9 through 21. And I was excited because that's a lot of options. And then I read Joshua 9 through 21. And it was a little more tricky than I thought. You see, if, you, if you've read Joshua, Joshua 9 through 21 is an accumulation of it. It's, it's the Israelites taking and possessing the land. So you get a lot of lists. Uh, lists of locations, of people. Um, and as I'm reading through this, I'm thinking, how, how am I going to preach a sermon from this section? But then as I was reading, I began to see this thread. And, and it really took me to, to a different place. And, I, and I, I understood that this inheritance that the Israelite people were going to receive was not just about real estate. But that there was something else at work here, a thread that actually goes back to the Garden of Eden all the way to the book of Revelation. And so this morning, that's what I want to do. I want to take you on a journey and look at this thread of inheritance all the way from the beginning into the end. That said, we're going to go back to Joshua 18. Let's start in verse 1. And the whole congregation of people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land laid subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? The question, how long will you wait? How long will you put off taking the land? Is what we're going to ask this morning. One of my most vivid memories was moving out of my home in 2011. I, I graduated from college and took a job here at Eastminster. And I remember loading all of my stuff. It wasn't very much. It was some clothes and whatever knickknacks I had around into my Chevy Prism. And I drove from Sterling, Kansas to Wichita, Kansas. And if you can remember back, maybe in your life, when you, when you moved out of your home, it's a kind of a jarring, disorienting experience. Because the place that you've called home your entire life is no longer your home. I mean, sure, you can go back and visit and spend holidays there, but it's no longer your permanent dwelling place. It was C.S. Lewis who said that people are wired to have a sense of homesickness, even when they might be home. And the reason is this, it's because we long for a permanent place to dwell. And we see this in Joshua 18 and 19, which is the capstone of all this inheritance of, of the Israelites finally receiving the land that God had promised them. But the inheritance in these passages is teaching us something other than a history lesson. Namely, it is giving us a picture of the way in which God dwells with us. These passages are not just about money or real estate, but about our permanent dwelling place. And as we come to the end of 18 and 19, we need to open this up a bit. And the first we see is this, 
that God seeks to dwell with his people. His purpose and intention in the world is to establish his dwelling place with his people. So we see this in 18 verse 1. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting here. Now it may come to a surprise that this is actually the first time we see mention of the tabernacle in the book of Joshua. It's probably implicit in other places, but this is the very first time we see it explicitly mentioned, the tent of meeting uh, mentioned in the book of Joshua. And there's a reason why it's intentional. There's a reason why Shiloh was a very specific place that God chose to send this tent. It's a very meaningful and significant thing. It's because God had promised that they would do this back in Deuteronomy 12. So if you want to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Deuteronomy 12, verse 8. I'll have it on the screen as well so you can follow along there. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Anyone doing whatever is right in their own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you will live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you should bring all I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present, and all your finest vows and offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Moses was promising something that God was telling him to do, namely that one day God would make his name dwell in a specific place. And that place we're seeing here is in Joshua. And this would only happen once they've inhabited Canaan. So we can assume earlier in Joshua that the tabernacle had existed in Gilgal. Uh, You can read about that in Joshua 4. And this is what the Israelite people would do, right? They would travel from one place to the next and they would set up camp and they would dwell in that place for a while. And whenever they would stop, they would set up the tabernacle. But here in Shiloh, God is doing something for the very first time. He's establishing his name to dwell in a very specific place. In fact, if you look ahead to Jeremiah 7.12, the prophet references, references it as the place God made himself dwell at first. He says, go now to my place that was in Shiloh when I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people of Israel. So, so what does that mean? Why, was that, why does it mean to make your name dwell? It doesn't mean what the people thought it would mean. If you were a, a, in, a, in the pagan world and a normal pagan person, you would assume that when, God would, that when you would move to a new location, there would be a God that resided over that location. And so when you'd be in a new place, there would be a new God that would own that turf, so to say. So when God is making his name dwell, in a sense, he was claiming his turf. He was claiming his dominion over the land, but there was a difference. Because Yahweh is one. One God over all places. There's no place that 
he doesn't inhabit, no place that he doesn't fill up, no time or space that contain him. In fact, King Solomon, when he established the temple, he said, not even God in the highest of heavens can, can be contained. Not even the highest heavens can contain him. So then can this temple itself contain him. In other words, Solomon understood that God and his magnitude and his majesty could not be contained to a place. It's a staggering thought that the God who created all things, the one who holds all things in place, every proton, neutron, electron, everything moving, the earth on his axis, that God, creator God, things exist because he spoke it into existence. And the earth is just a tiny speck in our solar system. And our solar system is just a tiny speck in our galaxy. Did you know that if you take the landmass of the United States compared to a single penny, that's the size of our solar system compared to our galaxy. If that doesn't blow your mind, astrophysicists believe or estimate that there could be anywhere from 100 billion galaxies to 200 billion. We're small. At least that makes me feel small. And yet God, who created this vast universe, dwelled in a specific place. This is where God meets his people. It's a place where we fellowship with him. It's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 12, where God will, people will meet with God, where they would bring their sacrifices, right, where they would make atonement, where they would make peace with God. And the whole story of the Bible narrates the way in which God wants to meet with his people, the way in which God wants to meet with you and with me. And the temple is actually the dwelling place of God. It's not just a building. It's not a building. It's the people in which the Holy Spirit resides. And God makes his name dwell with us here and now. It's an extraordinary thought, but what does it mean? Joshua 18, we're going to continue, verse 4. Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may go out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it when they view to their inheritance, and then come to me. So here's what's happening. They're going to take 21 men and survey the rest of the land. And if we zoom in, you'll see the line there that says, may set out and go up and down the land. The Hebrew word here is halak, which means to walk. But in this specific, this specific format, it literally means to go up and down, to and fro, up and around. And it, out of the 500 times that word is used in the, in the, Hebrew, in the Old Testament, there's only a few times that that tense is used. And the reason it's significant is because it's the same tense, it's the same word that's used describing when God himself walked in the Garden of Eden. You remember the story in Genesis 3? What happens? Adam and Eve, they sinned. They were ashamed. They were naked. So they covered themselves with fig leaves. And then they could hear the sound of God walking in the garden. In that same word, God went up and down, to and fro, up and around. What was happening is that God himself was exercising his sovereignty and his dominion over the land. He was exercising his reign in the garden. He wasn't just, if you read it in English, it might just seem like he was taking a stroll through the garden, but he was doing something different. 
to try to bring this home and explain it, it'd be kind of like this. I don't know what your routine is after church. When, when I go home after church, I'm usually pretty tired from teaching and whatever I had going that day. So I like to go home, put on, put on some sweatpants, have some lunch, and then I like to watch football if it's football season and fall asleep to the football game. Um, doesn't usually happen because my kids are crawling all over me during that time, but that's what I, I try to do, get a holy nap in there. Now imagine going to someone else's home. Let's say someone invites you over after church and you walk into their house and you go straight to their fridge and you open their fridge. It might give you a, side, a sideways glance. And then you walk into their bedroom and you start rummaging through their closet and looking for something to wear. That would be really weird, right? Typically, you don't go into someone else's home and just walk wherever you want because you don't own that home. You don't have dominion over that house. But you're comfortable to do that in your own home. In the same way, when God walks through the garden, he is exercising his dominion. It is his. He owns it. So we turn. We're going to turn to Leviticus 26, verse 11. God says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Here's that word again. He walks with us. He walks among us. He is not distant, but he is near. And Joshua is telling his people, you own it. This is the inheritance. This is the promise. And God is faithful. Now take the land that he has given you. Possess it. Establish your dominion. So what are we supposed to do? And last time God told someone to walk through the land was actually when he spoke to Abraham. This is in Genesis 13, verse 17. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. God tells Abraham, it's yours. This is your land. Now understand, at the time, the Canaanites still lived there. So he's telling him to go and rummage through someone else's closet, essentially. He's going into a place where someone else has sense to have that place, and that's their home. And he's walking through it because it was promised to be his, but he just hadn't taken possession of it yet. And just as God walks in our midst, and just as God is walking among us, so he tells us to go and exercise dominion in our world. Not in the sense that we go out and pillage, but out of a holy responsibility to this world. In the life of Abraham, right, we see that he's a stranger and sojourner in the land. And that's exactly what we are. And everywhere Abraham went, what did he do? He worshiped. He, had, he, he, he did uh, deals with the Canaanites, but he always did honest and fair dealings with them. And you even see him interceding for the Canaanites and praying for them. Lord, have mercy on them. And God has said that he will give us the kingdoms of this world when we reign with Jesus. Even though it's ours, we don't take possession yet. We live in the tension of the now, but the not yet. And in the meantime, we are called to worship wherever we go. Deal honestly with others. Intercede and pray that God would have mercy on the nations and bring them to faith. Let's look at that question again. What is the question that Joshua asked in verse 3? So Joshua said to the people of Israel, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land? How long will you wait? Which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has already given you. God is saying, you have this great privilege. 
Even though you are my creations who have sinned and my image was defiled, I have sent my son Jesus into the world. I have sent him to suffer the curse for your sin in your place. And through him, I reestablish the image of God on this earth to give it to you through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was the representation of the image of God. And now that you can be reshaped into my image and one day reign with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. And the best part is I want to take a moment to look at the future promise. We went backwards and we traced this thread of God dwelling with his people from the beginning and now the future promise of dwelling in Revelations 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be be mourning nor crying nor pain no more for the former things have passed away. And if you skip ahead to verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There will be one day when we will dwell with God, and there will be no walls, no curtains, no mediator, but we will have unrestricted access to being with Jesus and reigning with him forever. And here's why this is important. I don't know about you, um, in my experience, growing up, I had this picture of heaven in my mind that I'd someday be floating in the clouds that I'd have like wings and a hymnal in one hand and a harp in the other, and we sort of just float around, right? That was, this was like my idea. Of maybe I saw it in cartoons or something. But I had this view of heaven that was very, it's not biblical. It's not in the Bible. But we do see a picture of heaven in the Bible. You see, John is given this revelation of heaven. It will be a city, a new Jerusalem, one of my college professors had this great illustration. He was a C.S. Lewis scholar, and one of the things he said, I thought this was really profound, he said, he asked us the question, what do you think people, um, what will be their first words when they get to heaven? And he said, I think most people think that when they get to heaven, they're going to say, wow, this is amazing. This is, this is so great. It's everything I thought it would be. And he says, I think actually people are going to be shocked. I think the words that are going to come out of their mouth are, oh, this is nothing like I thought it would be. It'll be an incredible sense of surprise. Uh, my, my friend, he's a pastor, he, he told me this story of him trying to explain heaven and hell to his kids. He said, hell was easy. Uh, telling a kid what hell's like is like, I told him, it's, it's like being in timeout forever. And I was like, yeah, that's terrifying. I don't want that. Heaven was a little more tricky, right? Because if you explain to a four-year-old what, what heaven is like, you may say, oh, it's, it's like uh, you worship God forever. That, that doesn't really translate to a four-year-old. So he said it like this. He said, worshiping God forever, heaven is going to be like this. You're going to be with God, but it's also going to be in a place with all the toys, all your uncles, cousins, aunts, siblings, all of your friends, and you will worship God forever in that place. And his son looks up at him and says, can I go there now? When you hear about heaven, 
Do you say the same thing? Can I go there now? Do you want to go there now? Paul says in Philippians, I want to be in heaven, but I don't want to be in this body. I don't want to be in prison. But he says, I am here now and I'm going to serve you. See, the problem is that too many of us are running away from a world that God is running towards. The God who left his throne and dwells among us. And he's put us here for a reason. Heaven is not an escape tool to get us out of here. Heaven is the reason we stay and love Jesus. Heaven is the reason that we love the poor. Heaven is the reason that we forgive, that we love our enemies. Or as Pastor Stan says, Eastminster on its best day gives itself away for the sake of others. Heaven is why we sacrifice our comfort for others. Heaven is why we don't hoard our money and possessions where moth and rust destroy. Heaven is the hope of being in a world that sometimes feels like hell. For some of you here, perhaps that's your experience. You've gone through a great deal of pain and suffering, or maybe you're in that, walking in that season right now. I don't know all of your stories. For some of you, it may be issues with your family, your marriage is on the rocks. Perhaps there's un unresolved resentment, bitterness, anger in your hearts. You're dealing with depression, anxiety, or fear. Some of you may be grieving someone who you've lost, who is close to you. Or some of you are stuck in addiction, and it's secret, and you have no way out. I want you to hear this this morning. Wherever you are on your journey, all of us who may be prone to wander, hear this. Heaven is the hope of being in a world that feels like hell. And God himself is near. Christ's very presence is near. And he wants to see you whole and healed. That's why we're here. That's why we stay. That's why we continue to follow Jesus. And the closer we get to death, the closer we get to God, the closer we are to suffering often, the more we sense God. It's like C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone. Heaven is a place where God is going to wipe away every tear. It's a place where all pain and suffering will cease. It's a place where we can reign with Jesus forever. I want to close by sharing uh, a couple years ago, I lost my, grandpa my grandfather. Uh, he passed, uh, he went through a couple years of dementia and then passed, luckily had his family surrounding him. And he was the type of person, you know, he left, he didn't leave a large inheritance. He wasn't a very wealthy man in that sense. But he was the type of person who was so generous that you could, you could go up to him and be like, hey, grandpa, I like the shirt you're wearing. I like the hat you're wearing. And in that moment, he would just give it to you. Like, oh, it's yours. If you like it, take it. I can't tell you how many times he would just pull out his wallet and give me money whenever he'd see me. Not a guy who had a lot of money, but it didn't matter. He would give everything away. And though he didn't give a, a large monetary inheritance, the legacy that my grandpa left for my, my uh, brothers and for uh, all of his grandkids and his kids was far beyond anything that money could ever buy. It was a legacy of a man who followed Jesus, both in the way he loved my grandma and the way he lived his life. And it's the kind of legacy that I want to leave someday. I want to close by challenging you to consider your inheritance. 
Because you can give your kids and your grandkids money, you can give them a building, but if they don't have Christ, they have nothing. I work with young people, I work with high schoolers on a day-to-day basis, and we live in a culture that is busy, a culture where we're shuffled from one activity to the next activity, and we're constantly thinking about the next thing, thinking about college, thinking about whatever's coming next. And what your son and daughter needs more than anything in the world is they need Christ. Christ in you, Christ in the home. And that's my encouragement to you this morning. Friends, the inheritance is about far more than real estate. It's about God meeting with his people here and now. God has come to meet you here. How long will you wait? Let's pray. Father, meet us here. Meet us in our brokenness, in our humility. I thank you for these men and, we- men and women who are here today. I'm eager as ever for this to be our reality, eager as ever to experience this in the here and the now as I wait for it to come in the fullness. I pray for the brothers and sisters who have come into this place who are weary, who are exhausted, who are beaten down, and maybe on the edge of hopelessness. I pray in this space that we would be fully aware of your presence, that we might in this moment be reminded that you have not saved us to abandon us, that you will sustain us until this day, so empower us to keep running to you, running back to you, and to keep moving on. Thank you that your grace is sufficient for the journey the long journey to one day reign with you forever. Strengthen our hands, our resolve, our hearts by your Holy Spirit and strengthen us all the more for this journey. Lord, and bless our tithes and offerings. As we give, may we give with generosity knowing that what you can do with our money is far greater than we could ever imagine. So we give with boldness and with humility. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.